0: Hello and welcome to The Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. A series of lectures on video game history is part of The Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed
1: us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Miles. And I'm Red. This
2: week, Alex has a wonderful conversation with Roberta Williams, the creator of King's Quest and one of the, uh, orig- uh, which is one of the original powerhouse titles of Sierra Entertainment, uh, and one of the queens of the industry, the original <clears throat> one of the original powerhouses behind a great series of games. But before we get into their conversation, we got a bit of news. Uh, The PlayStation Store servers for PS3 and PSP will officially be shut down in July of this year, while Vita gets a little extra month. Uh, Vita will end at the end of August this year, so buy up everything you can in the meantime from those stores. You know, make them rethink their decision to shut them down. Um, uh, But as far as that, there is not a ton of other insane news cd project red is going to be opening a vancouver studio so they were going to have a, like a second to main studio and they're going to be working on the witcher and cyberpunk franchises simultaneously starting in 2022 so they will be hopefully uh, and they also have taken they they want to they say they want to live up to their hu- a high standard that they recognize they failed to uphold with the launch of cyberpunk but well as far as the news goes there's one little interesting piece of future uh razor uh no sorry not razor uh qualcomm uh is uh developing a switch like console as well and they will be coming out with that uh I believe next year at some point, but they're it's going to be running on Android 12 if I'm not mistaken, and using their uh, Snapdragon chips. It's supposed to have like a removable uh, controllers from the sides, like the Switch. We'll see how it goes into the future. Uh, but apparently, the Switch uh, has been breeding lots of uh, imposters or mimickers because it is a dang good console they really knocked it out of the park with that and i think it's something that people should continue to look for but with that i think it's about time we throw it over to alex and roberta williams and their talk about king's quest and her rise into sierra entertainment and the leaps she took and well we'll let them say the rest And here they are, Alex and Roberta Williams.
1: Welcome back. And we are here with the illustrious queen of the adventure games, Roberta Williams, the absolute one of the founders of this industry. And uh, I'm absolutely floored to have you here. Thank you so much, Roberta.
3: Oh, my pleasure.
1: Uh, We wanted to talk about your career and the context in which it existed. And we, we sort of touched on this before, but like when you started with Mystery House, yeah, there was no framework. There was nothing. What did you, how did you even envision Doing a story, an adventure,
0: what was your inspiration?
3: Yeah, well, my inspiration was the game Colossal Cave, which I'm sure you're very well um, aware of. Um, the very first, what you you might call the very first adventure game, at least that's what the, um, the initial designers, um, ta- and they called it an adventure game. So that was what we've always gone with ever since. And uh, in 1979, early 1980, I got into playing Colossal Cave on um, on a kind of a teletype kind of machine that Ken had. Ken, my Ken Williams, my husband, was a programmer at the time, and uh, actually a very, very good programmer. And uh, he he was doing some contract work, and he would bring home um, a, a kind of one of these uh, remote teletype. Um, um, uh, machine printed out on paper. It it printed out on paper. It looked like, it looked like a, um, a, a very small printer with roll, with roll paper in it. And then it had a separate, uh, uh, router where you put, you'd put your, your telephone, your, you know, the old telephones where you had it in your ear and your mouth, you know, back then in the ancient days. And you'd put it down into two little foam circles into it. And then that would go in the, in the teleton. And then of course, then he'd, he'd sign on. And then he'd go into whatever, uh, wherever it was, he was working. And I think at the time he was actually working for a children's hospital in Los Angeles, um, but working from home. Cause this was contract work after hours and on this, on this, uh, huge IBM computer that was at the children's hospital. There were some games and one of them was Colossal cave all in text. Of course, everything was in text because it was actually the whole game was being printed out on, on uh, printer paper. And, and also this teletype um, machine, little machine had, um, had a keyboard attached attached to it as well. And he was just messing around one night in uh, late 1979, With uh, playing, I think there was Star Trek was on it, and I, I think I'm not sure. And there was some little football game on it where you were playing football with X's and O's and moving them around. And every time it was your turn, you know, you would move your X or your O or something like that to play football. And along with those two, there was also um, this colossal cave. Uh, and he was just messing around playing it. And I was, well, I don't know what I was doing. I, I had recently had a baby and I was probably, who knows what I was doing with him, but he said, come in here, Roberta, come in here. You've got to see this. I think you'd like this. And I'm like, what, what? He says, here, sit down and, and play this. And I sat down and started typing in, you could type in one or two word f- phrases to get through this story it was written out, but it was, as it turned out, it was an exploit exploration through an actual cave system, which I'm not sure where it was Kentucky. Maybe was it Tennessee or Kentucky? One of those. Yeah. One of those it was actually designed around that. But obviously with embellishments like dwarves and trolls and dragons and, and things like that. So I definitely, I got so into this thing playing it that I couldn't stop I just, it was on my mind. I would go to sleep at night and try to try to get past it and through it. And I had all my graph paper over here and I'm mapping it and getting through it. And I wanted to get every single point. And I think it was like 361 or 362 points, something like that. And I got them all finally. And once it was over, I wanted to play something more like this. I want I just had to do it. The only thing available, that any kind of game that was like this at the time... By this time, we had bought an Apple II computer for Christmas of 1979. And then I found out that I didn't have to use this teletype machine in order to play it. But by then it was too late. I already had gotten through it. um, And I found out that there was something, uh, these text adventure games from a, a place called Adventure International... Scott Adams owned the the company at the time. In fact, I think he's still around. I think Ken has actually talked to him lately. Um, and uh, I was, oh, great. And then I can actually have it on a, a at first I th- it was on cassette tape. But then we got a uh, hard drive for our, our Apple II computer and floppy disk um, floppy disk drive, and I could start playing these games that way. So I played most of those games really quickly, uh, really quickly. And, and when, and then I was just, I started thinking no, and no offense to Scott Adams at all, but I was thinking that I could maybe do this maybe better than Scott Adams and so I decided to sit down and see if I could. And I just, but I, I didn't really know where to start. And this is where, from where you're coming from, where you're trying to uh, let other, uh, especially children or, or young people, know how to begin designing a game. This is what I was faced with. But whereas today they have you, and they also have uh, colleges and universities that teach uh, you know, computer game design along with programming and, and, and animation and art and, and, and everything else, we didn't have that. And, and I was not, um, and I will admit that I'm not a college graduate, although I did have some, uh, you know, where it's Ken, he, he, and he's not a college graduate either. He just basically learned, uh, by the seat of his pants and experience and smarts and reading big, thick computer programming books, just, uh, He just learned it and and was early on in the industry when anybody that could even remotely program could get a job. So some of that was just very much luck for both Ken and I to be able to to get into the computer programming and, and gaming end of things from the time period.
1: I wanted to, to quickly sum up one, two things I noticed that you mentioned there. One, you said you were a completionist on adventure, like a full 100%. In today's lingo, 100% achievements, 100% unlocked. Oh, yes. The second thing is I have this vision of you with the teletype. That would be loud. This is there's no screen on this thing for our readers. This is literally paper, is you are typing the stuff and it's printing it out on a piece of paper. Like you must have generated reams of this. Oh yeah.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We had to buy extra rolls of paper. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, no, it is it is hard to envision. Um, but you but it, it has to be remembered that in that in that day and age We didn't have monitors like we have now. We didn't. We had TV, of course, and we even had color TV. As hard as that may be to imagine, but we did. Uh, So, uh, but um, so we didn't have all the bells and whistles that you have today. And I, I don't think. Well, I'd be surprised. I would be actually. um, I would think it'd be great. If uh, if a if a young person or an old person, if any people, could get involved into a game as much as I did on paper, <laughs> and just and just to be able to type in one or two word phrases in a in a keyboard, and get that involved into it, maybe maybe it was just a time period and what we had to work with but I was just always, I was always a a big reader, bookworm. I just read and read and read and read and and, um, very, very imaginative as a kid, extremely imaginative. So I don't think it took much for me and and especially the fact that it was immersive um, and interactive. And I was, and even though I the story wasn't the, the greatest. It was really more just an exploration of 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 where am I going next and how do I get past this, this, this area that's blocking me. That just drew me in completely. But I also likened it to uh, a story that you could drop yourself into and play it and decide for yourself. And that's the part that really intrigued me. And when I decided that I was going to try to design my own game, I went more the, the story area as opposed to just exploring something like a cave.
1: Indeed, and I mean that comes through. Your games are so story driven. I have to quickly interject that King's Quest 2 was a game that I got into like you did with the uh, the text. However, I, it, it confounded me as a child. It was so brutal you know murdering you often. It was so vicious at the time. Well, you
3: know, in in Col- Colossal Cave, you die a lot too. A lot, yeah, too. you know, yeah. so I was I learned that. <laughs>
1: That was the context of the day. The that was the much...
3: context of the day.
1: <laughs> and King's Quest was less brutal than, than adventure, you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, now, I mean, do you die a lot in, the, in games today, especially with adventure games? I mean, do you, or has that been sort of taken away?
1: Uh, in what we would call adventure games today, like the story-driven telltale games and the things like uh, Life is uh, Strange, uh, no, you cannot die.
3: Oh, okay. So, I mean, is that a good thing, or... Or not. I don't or, know.
1: Uh, oh, we could have a discussion for three hours about that topic, couldn't we? Is that good or not? I don't know. Uh, what do I, you think?
3: I kind of, I mean, I, I I obviously have not designed a game in about oh, a little over 20 years. My last one being um, Mask of Eternity, the King's Quest VIII uh, sequel. And then Phantasmagoria just right before that. Um so a little over 20 years, and I honestly have not played any games since then. I, be, I get asked a lot. Uh, and well, and so not having played any of the, the game, and, I, and actually, I've been thinking I should. I, I've really been thinking I need, I need to play at least one. And, and if I were to play one, is there one you would, you would like to recommend?
1: I would recommend Life is Strange or Wolf Among Us.
3: Life is Strange. Let me write it down.
1: Yes, Those are both excellent, and they're exceptionally story-driven games. I think you'd be very impressed with where this industry took your inventions. And, I mean these games, you can see the framework you built.
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: You can absolutely see the framework you built, except... You don't die. <laughs>
3: you don't die. Okay. You don't I, die.
1: Yeah, you know? like, I
3: guess before I could even answer that question about whether having death or not, it, being involved is a good thing or a bad thing, I would have to play at least one of these games and then uh, see how I felt <laughs> after I was done doing it. <laughs> but just right off the top of my head, I would say that to me, I think having the element of failure um, Cause it's not a real death. You're not really dying. Um, you're just being stopped and, and you have to start again and, or, or hopefully you saved a game and you could just, and and you were really good about doing that and you don't have to go back too far. But, um, but just the fact that you have to think and decide, and you have to, you have to just do a little more, I think is good, but that's just me, but we'll, we'll see. I'll play one of these games.
1: I mean, it introduced risk, right? It's like there's got to be something at stake.
3: It's life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of life, uh, I wanted to give you time to talk about the book that you're, you've you just released, I believe.
3: Yes, it's called uh, Farewell to Terra, and it is nothing. It's not a computer game. It's a book, and it's not even a fantasy. I, I hate, I don't want to be, you know, down or anything because I know the audience that I'm talking to. Um, It's not. It's not a fantasy. Although um, I, you never know. I might get into writing that. But I just, I just, I needed to do something after I was uh, retired, um, and didn't kind of just didn't know what to do, and started a a little projects. I learned Spanish and and just various things, and I got into genealogy. Uh, Just my uncle sent me some some. some little blurbs about ancestors and and Irish in this particular case, because my mom is Irish and this was my Irish uncle, her, her brother. And, uh, and I looked at it and I said, Oh, that's really interesting. You know who they were. I hadn't even heard their names even, and I needed something to do. And the internet was really coming on strong and ancestry.com and some of these genealogy sites and I just sat down to ancestry.com and I typed in their names, and up comes some stuff. And 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 to me, when I, I got into genealogy, it was very much like going to, playing an adventure game. <laughs> and I got into this as much as I got into Colossal Cave. When I was in Colossal Cave, I could not leave that teletype machine or some Scott Adams games. You know, I just play. And I was into this just like playing an adventure game. And I just was going deeper and deeper and deeper into genealogy. And I was going all over the place and finding people and documents. And I just found it you know, just just so addictive. And, um, and it was very immersive. And as I did this, I, I got so much into it. I actually hired a professional Irish genealogist to help me out and get some documents But as I was doing this, yeah, I began to see a story emerge, Uh, but it's a true story. And it was a, it was a story that was based into the famine of Ireland, the great famine. And, and I was, actually, I I just had an interview with a, um, you know, a guy in, uh, I I don't, I won't mention his name or anything, um, but, uh, uh, he's in Ireland. He lives in Dublin who also was into the video games and he had a podcast and and he was, he was a fan and and all of that. And he was talking to me and we were talking about history because history, besides fantasy, history has always been my favorite subject. In fact, I would say probably more um, my subject than fantasy. I just love history. And, and he was very much the same way. And, we were talking about how uh, it didn't seem that children learn history as much as maybe they used to. I don't know how much they used to actually, maybe it was just me. Um, But, uh, but he was saying, yeah, you know, even in Ireland, like the great famine is not taught or not really taught much. And I said, really? I mean, that was like a preeminent, thing that happened in Ireland. I mean, that was like a big deal. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't say it wasn't taught, but it's not really, it's not really taught, I guess. And I was saying, yeah, you know, in the United States, we we don't learn that much about history either. Or like of our country. I mean, we just, um, so we, we, we got into that, that conversation I found interesting. And he, he, um, he read my book and he loved it. Um, and he said he <laughs> learned a lot more about h- the history of Ireland because I actually, in my book, I go way back to pre-Christian times, and um, and then uh, Christian times, and through all the various rebellions that the uh, that the Irish went through when they as they were fighting the English, who were trying to come over and take over their country since you know since well at least the twelve hundreds. And then uh, through Henry VIII and, and on and on. And so I get into, I get into to, to, uh, quite a bit of that before I even get really to the famine. Um, and he said he <laughs> learned a lot about his own country. And I found it interesting because he says, if you're American, I go, well, yeah, uh, but I, I'm a very good researcher. I'm a very good researcher and I'm a very I consider myself a pretty good storyteller. And apparently I was able to sort of weave that. The basic thing about the book is that I discovered two of my ancestors that eventually married in the United States. And that's how we came to become in the United States. And they just escaped the ravages of Ireland after the famine. But I found these two people, and it was almost like a Romeo and Juliet story and they in that they were from two separate classes of people in Ireland. And there was a lot of stratification that you you didn't really realize that. Um, there were there was you know, a good third of of Ireland during the mid1800s were very poor, very poor. I, I mean, some of them just didn't even have homes. They, they wandered all over Ireland and they lived in mud huts and caves and little, and, and and nobody, no, no, um, Roman Catholic, Irish person, which is most of them. They were very Irish Catholic, Roman Catholic, um, could own property. It was against the law. You could not, and this is your country. Um, and, um. I found that interesting. well, one one part of my family, the Clintons, were of that. They were of the very, very poor. and they and they basically lived off of potatoes. and the the famine was about the failure of the potato. And uh, that's where that started. The other half of this couple, the Romeo and Juliet couple, were the Loerrans. They were also Roman Catholic. They could not own their property, but they came from a class of people who were uh, what they called strong farmers. They had property. They didn't own it. They leased it, but um, but they were they were pretty well off. And it, I found it interesting these two families of very different backgrounds who came together in the end. And, um, they emigrated and they, um, started a um, family line that, and here I am, <laughs> I was part of it, but I liked the story. And I love the story of how these families were so different and, and how they, how they went through the great famine, which was, uh, Ireland started out in, in, um, my great, 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 no great, 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 great grandfather, was born in 1841 and and the famine started in 1845 so he was three and my great-great-grandmother was born in 1846 and the worst of the famine was in 1847 so they were born during this they were very young but uh before when patrick was born there were over eight million people in ireland By the time they emigrated, they were down to about 5 million people. So at least a million people died, and 2 million people by that time had emigrated. And many of those died on the way to America or Australia or Canada. Um, Now Ireland has come back. Ireland has about 6 million people now, but they're still down 2 million people from the height in um, 1845
1: so it's a, it's a very so, relevant story for today i mean with the immigration i mean the the irish did not arrive in the united states with open open arms you know as no
3: they did not they did not
1: very few immigration waves yes, get the open arms. yeah so
3: this is a drama dramatization um it, it is fiction in the sense it's based upon uh, a true story it has a lot of facts so it's not a family genealogy. It's very dramatic. It's very intense. And uh, and in fact, I've actually found that people who are reading it who are not of the family are enjoying it more than people of the family. And go figure that. I, I, well, I Excellent.
1: Well, yeah. you're such a good yeah. storyteller, Roberta. And unfortunately, this is only a 20-minute interview. I wish these could be hours yeah, long. I, I unfortunately have it, to cut it, it off <laughs> here. But uh, that was wonderful. I very much appreciate you taking the time. And we'll have you back in the future, hopefully.
3: Oh, well, that, that would be my pleasure. And uh, and thank you very much for uh, letting me uh, go on and on. And I appreciate it.
1: No, it's not going on and on. I'm sure everybody is listening very intently. I know that at least one of our listeners runs the Interactive Fiction Group. So they're still playing those. Adventures. Oh,
3: well, one more thing I need to say, as long as we're here, check out my uh, website, <laughs> Robertusbook.com. RobertusBook.com. And then And there's all the information you need if anybody's interested in buying it or reading it there. Okay.
1: Excellent. Roberta's book. And say the name of your book again.
3: Farewell to Tara.
1: Farewell to Tara. And then
3: you'll you'll learn why Tara as you read the book.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And we're back. Okay.
3: (laughs) Uh,
2: So thank you roberta williams there was a very uh it was an inspiring chat to hear you and like you you just have such drive and determination for creating something that you believe you can make well uh so if anybody out there anybody uh kids women anybody just let ev- if you have an idea that you want to go through just do your best to work on it continuously and work forward. Uh, because when you take chances and you want to try and do something. As in, she needed to learn how to code a game and create a game. Like, after she got hired. She was like, yeah, I can write a game for you and do that. Mm. Make it up to go. Exactly. Fake yeah. it until you make it, right? But, yes.
0: Yeah, that is, but, that is no small feat.
2: No. Not a small feat, but believe in yourself. Believe in yourself,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and rise to the top. You can and start your own indie studio. Have fun, you know. <laughs> Anything you want to do. Um, but I feel like uh, I've i haven't played many King's Quest games, but I've watched numerous playthroughs through some Let's players that I enjoy watching, and it's honestly that style of game and the the way they tell the story and just like the exploring of everything else, uh, the way that they're able to actually you like animate. It was such a large step forward for King's quest to Mm -hmm. have, uh, for King's quest from previous Sierra games, just to have movable backgrounds and like really intricate, like, sound design of different things creating and different things you can do. Uh, It's a really remarkable way, and just, even though it does look a bit old and pixely, it is still a foundational game that I highly recommend everybody to give a shot, and so they can know where a lot of their games, uh, a lot of their open-world games are story-based. Like, uh, decision-making leads you uh, where it has led into the future, so everybody go check out those
0: i'm remembering playing through um like back in in my early years of gaming uh shoot what was that 2003 2004 um my first big computer game was the harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban for pc Ooh. um you know before that it was all carmen san diego and type to learn and all that sort of stuff which was great yes. like fine but uh, Harry Potter was the first real game, and I was blown away by how realistic it looked. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, it's, you know, it's incredibly pixelated. It's really low poly. It's it's It doesn't hold up very well.
2: Well, but also, uh, you, like, a lot of those older games are also meant to be played on, like, tube monitors. Oh, yeah, on, uh, on CRTs. So, yeah. Yes. So, like, when you're playing those older games, they look a lot better with the like the mm-hmm. machines of the era, like the the equipment of the era, they look like they look a lot less clear cut and pixely cut mm-hmm. or not, not pixely cut, but you know, angular, uh, it rounds it out because, well, the screen was round, uh, with a big old tube, but it's but, very, very fun.
0: But now moving that sort of same aesthetic of like the, not exactly the highest number of polygons you've ever seen, or, you know, the best, um, Uh, like pixel art or uh, like textures or anything moving that to today, you're seeing games like Octopath Travel. You're seeing games like Celeste. You're seeing games like Valheim. Uh, Mm -hmm. Valheim is a really interesting example. I don't play it, but my friends do. And I've watched a lot of them play. It does not have very good textures. It does not have very good, um, uh, uh, 3d models. Like the polygons are not there. Mm -hmm. Everything's very pixelated and it's very clearly pixelated. Um, is and that it's,
2: intentional?
0: It's intentional because the lighting engine uh, mm. is still modern. So, like it, like the physical models. If you took the lighting engine out of there, it would look like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. But the fact that it's got this, like, you know, Unity or Unreal Engine four level lighting system makes it look like a good game. Like, it's 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 this very clear like balance between we want to focus on gameplay versus like we're gonna make everything look pretty versus we're gonna make everything look kind of crummy but have this beautiful lighting that makes up for it and it's kind of the Mm -hmm. same with Octopath like Octopath is a very uh like very well-made game that that uses pixel art but is still 3d like Mm. the pixel art is sort of this tacked on Uh, method of expression. It's not like, oh, we had to do it in pixel art. It's, we chose to do pixel art because we wanted it to look this way. And again, it has a great lighting system and it makes up for, like, you know, not having very good models. Yeah.
2: It's uh, um, the marvels of modern technology. Uh, We'll see, it'll be interesting to see the development of games like this in the future and how much they go. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, once again, I think it's about time... uh, to start wrapping it up, unfortunately, uh, we would we could talk about all of this all day, and I, we'd love to have Roberta Williams back because at the end of her interview, she mentioned that she was going to try and play. She hadn't played games in years, uh, and she was interested in seeing how it goes. Alex recommended she play Life is Strange, a fantastic game. Uh, we will, it'll be exciting to see. Uh, her response to that in the future so until next time absolutely uh we await your response to that marvelous game miss williams uh thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment's official podcast if you have any thoughts questions corrections or general museum ideas please shoot us an email at info at
1: themade.org we'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue with that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Anthony. I'm Miles. I'm Red. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Have a great one. Late skis.